Welcome to Mintcast, the podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. This is episode 427, recorded on Sunday, December 10th, 2023. Here for the beer, I'm Joe. Christmas shopping is kind of like Mondays, it never seems to end. I'm Bill. First up in the news, Linux Mint 21.3, codenamed Virginia, beta released. Mint Monthly News, November 2023. Gnome Shell updates on Ubuntu 23.10. Zorin has a new desktop. Caliber offers new formats. KDE fixes bugs ahead of Plasma 6. Intel does some driver code cleanup. Canonical ports multipass to QT6. Linux 6.8 is dropping support for very old graphics drivers. In security and privacy, stealthy Linux rootkit found in the wild after going undetected for two years. Then in our wanderings, I'm mumbling for a straight week. Joe is droning on. And that's it. Only two of us. On to the news. Linux Mint 21.3 Virginia beta released. And this is from the Linux Mint blog via Londoner. About three and a half hours ago, the release of Mint 21.3 beta was officially announced in the usual three desktop environments. To see, to see what's new, go to linuxmint.com slash, well, there's links in the show notes. Um to that and uh, the release notes. Um, please be reminded that, uh, one, this beta release might contain critical bugs. Please only use it for testing purposes and to help the Linux Mint team fix issues prior to the stable release. Two, upgrade instructions will be published after the stable release of Linux Mint 21.3. And three, it will be possible to upgrade from this beta to the stable release. And finally, four, it will also be possible to upgrade from Linux Mint 21 to Linux Mint 21.1. One of our previous guests, Switch to Linux, already has a video on the, on the beta on YouTube, and there's a link to that in the full show notes, too. Okay, next up. Unless you got something else you want to say about that. No, not really. I haven't had a chance to look at it yet. He, yeah, me either. Londoner literally just added this to the notes probably a couple yeah. hours ago. Yeah, and I'm not big on playing with the betas. I don't know. Not it's really. just me. I could see why they exist, and it's valuable for the people that do have the chops and the time to test stuff. But I, I got to have something on here that I know is going to work. <laughs> yeah. Up next... Mint Monthly News, November 2023, also via Londoner, from the Linux Mint blog. Uh, Nemo Actions, starting with Cinnamon 6.0, you'll be able to download, enable, and rate actions the same way as applets, desklets, extensions, and Cinnamon themes. This will include actions such as Verify and Make Bootable USB Stick in the context menu when right-clicking on ISO files. 
Wayland support. There is now a dedicated GitHub repository for issues related to Wayland, whether they need fixing in Cinnamon, an XApp project, a Mint tool, or any other software project maintained by the Mint team. Hypnotics recently received the ability to set favorite channels. It will also feature the ability to create custom channels. In Slick Reader, the login screen, the alignment of login box is now configurable. Bulky, the batch file renaming tool, receives support for thumbnails and drag and drop. In Pix, Video Playback now takes the video orientation into account and automatically rotates it. Now that is interesting. I, you know, we talked, uh, I think it was either last show or the show before, about um, Mint eventually moving to Wayland in what was it going to be, 23? No. I think I heard him say like 20. The next full 20. LTS, somewhere in the middle of that process. Okay. It's going to be a little while, but we're going to have access to it. Uh, prior to that, it just won't be official until then, which I don't have a huge problem with that, to be oh, honest with I you. Hope, well, with all of the different, you know, flavors slowly switching to Wayland or not so slowly switching to Wayland, I'm hoping that it does get more X Wayland support. And I'm also hoping that screen mirroring improves and screen sharing improves. Yeah, because right now it's it's really hit and miss with some of that stuff but i mean we're we're miles ahead of where we were a year or two ago but you know there's still work to be done right and you know i tried playing with wayland when it first came out like a decade gone and and yeah it wasn't worth it then but and i've kind of ignored it until now when it started taking over again so hopefully hopefully the story on plasma is pretty good i've been using it on plasma for well over a year now and the it's good enough now to where there's not enough problems with it to warrant going back to x and um the few things that didn't work so well you know there's kind of workarounds for that um the only problem i'm still having on plasma is the look and feel of gnome apps or gtk apps i should say on plasma is still a little bit shaky and i remember them saying not long ago that they had improved that i've yet to see that but uh i'm sure it's just a matter of time the other thing about this i'm really kind of impressed how much attention hypnotics gets um nowadays you know with everybody using netflix and youtube and stuff like that and you got pluto and all that you know well, I like Hypnotics. I just, I do too. You know, I've tested it out. Uh, I've tried it. It seems really cool, but I just don't have uh, a mainstream use for it. And, and, um, you know, it, I, I have Plex and I have Netflix and right. I have Amazon Prime Video and all that jazz. And I just don't use it. I like it. It's just, yeah, it's there. It's impressive, though. I suppose I, I, there are some people that use it, and the one the people that use it rave about it. So, um, fair play to them. Anyway, well, anyway, uh, moving on. GNOME Shell forty five point two update rolling out to Ubuntu twenty three point ten, and this is from OMG Ubuntu. The first point release to GNOME Shell forty five only hit Ubuntu twenty three ten at the end of last month, and now a second one is already on its way. Gnome Shell 45.2 was released upstream at the start of December. 
now Ubuntu's developers have packaged it up and pushed it out to users of Ubuntu 23.10. It hit the Mantic proposed repo today, so assuming no unexpected issues are found in the coming days, the update will be pushed onto all other users through the regular update channel in the coming week or two. Think of it as an early Christmas treat. As with GNOME Shell 45.1, the latest point released is a bug fix bonanza. All manner of errant issues have addressed, including several that pertain to performance, including a fix in performance degradation due to repeated signal leak, optimized application search, fix on-screen keyboard backspace getting stuck, fix arrow navigation in search results, uh, support async code in eval dbus method, uh, or eval, I'm sure there's a name for that symbol, it's two parentheses, uh, dbus method, fix sliders not requesting any size, only show prefs dialog after the extension has been loaded, improve high contrast styling, fix mapping of tablet rings slash stri uh, strips, Add support for version name fields in extensions, extension meta info. And for those of you that understand what half of that means, I'm sure you're very excited. Yeah, I really don't have anything to add to that. I mean, pretty straightforward. Yeah. Okay, Zorin OS 17 beta includes new spatial desktop features. I'm going to have to have that explained to me. A beta build of the upcoming Zorin OS 17 release is available to download. Zorin OS 17 sees the Ubuntu-based distro rebase on top of Ubuntu 22.04 LTS. But interestingly, it includes GNOME 43 rather than GNOME 42, which is the version included in Ubuntu 22.04. Given the substantial leap from GNOME 3.38 used in previous Zorin OS releases, this version offers much improved performance and several major user experience changes, such as a horizontal workspace switcher, interactive screenshot tool, and button-based quick settings menu. Zorin OS 17 builds out from those solid foundations with a slew of GNOME shell extensions. Amongst them is an enhanced Zorin menu extension. Aside from launching apps, this now lets you search for files, calendar appointments, contacts, world clocks, anything the standard GNOME shell overview is able to do or show, the Zorin menu can now do or show too. And as an upstream GNOME shell, you can turn search providers, helpers on or off from the settings app. You can download the Zorin OS 17 beta from the project website. Now, as far as what spatial means, um, I think when I when I saw the article on OMG Ubuntu, they had a little demonstration going on on video, and it looked like I think what they're talking about is this new desktop visualization thing, like the old um, like the old Compi's uh, cube that puts all the desktops on each side of the cube, except with this one, instead of having a perfect cube it's kind of got the desktops um arranged uh, at a 90 degree angle from each other and then the applications in those desktops sit out in front of the image of the desktop so it's kind of a three-dimensional all the way around and you can articulate this image but there's a link um 
in the show notes to go and look at that. I don't know how, I don't know how, it's interesting. I don't know how useful stuff like that is. And I'm really surprised that people invest in that kind of thing. Cause I think, I think that literally just got added back to the, uh, the KDE thing, the, the K win, uh, it was it was a feature in KWIN, and then they dropped it for a long time, and now it's back. Must be by popular demand. I don't know. But then again, mm-hmm. I use the wobbly windows too on on plasma. That's probably useful to people that you know have used it and are familiar with it. Yeah, just a silly little funky thing people do just to show off, or you know, it might. I don't know. All the reasons you can't think of, I suppose. Yeah. Anyway, moving on, Caliber eBook app now supports audio EPUBs and custom notes. And this is from Joey Snedden at OMG Ubuntu. Now, I I said it that way. I said it's from Joey Snedden because this is going to read a lot more like a blog post than a news article. Um, if Caliber, the popular open source eBook manager, was a book itself, it'd surely be a perennial bestseller thanks to an exhaustive, multifaceted feature set. And in the latest Caliber 7 release, the feature set expands yet further. The latest version introduces a clutch of new capabilities to the manager's existing roster of ebook conversion, syncing, reading, and editing options. Among the new features in Caliber 7.x, uh, to me, the standout, and me being Joey, the standout addition in Caliber 7.0 is the ability to store notes linked to various book attributes within your Caliber library. You can stash notes related to authors, publishers, book series, and more so you can keep track of information relevant to you. Using this in Caliber 7 and up is super easy. Just right-click on an author or tag name in the tag browser or book detail panel Click Edit Notes and away you go. To browse and search all notes you've added to your library, just push Control Shift N, and as in no. Or you can edit the toolbar and add a Browse Notes option to it. Another great sounding enhancement is support for audio EPUBs. Okay, let, let, let's pause right there. I want to take this in kind of sections. It's a bit bit of a big article and i am excited by this the, yeah it's uh, interesting caliber update yeah um the audio epubs I, I do want to know about that but for now is this like um the notes portion uh the sort of a cliff notes thing i wonder if there's a way to like share those or if there will be in the future it so would be way- interesting to find out because if you can well the, the 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 use case i was thinking about had more to do with like research and um I don't know what. Right. For yourself, you know, research, uh, highlighting specific things. But if you look at like Cliff Notes, those get passed around in a college so people get an idea of what other people saw in it and, you know, what they, and compare it to what they saw themselves. And then that can help them with uh, studying and things like that. I'm just wondering if, you know, that's a future possibility and, um, how how well that would work. Cause that, that seems like a good idea. I like that particular feature. Okay. Uh, Okay, another great sounding enhancement is support for audio EPUBs, EPUBs, <laughs> i.e. EPUB 3.0 spec. These allow video and audio to be embedded in a file alongside text. So that's even cooler. So if you prefer to listen to ebooks rather than read them, this will be welcome. 
Alas, patent restrictions can mean playing audio ebooks and caliber 7.0 and above may not work as it should on Linux, though your mileage will, as they say, vary. So try it out and let me know. Caliber 7 also lets you attach data files relevant to the book with that book and manage and access said data within the app. What kind of data? Well, that's up to you. But it might be PDFs, web links, office documents slash essays, images, etc. Finally, Caliber 7 has its own private recycle bin, which Caliber says makes it easier to undo book deletion with a click and restoring all its files and metadata automatically. Similar to other apps, when you delete a book within Caliber, a temporary undo dialog is shown. As always, users are encouraged to update to the latest version of Caliber to take advantage of the latest new features, but also benefit from bug fixes, performance tweaks, and interoperability buffs. In all, Caliber remains a versatile and user-friendly ebook management solution, and this latest update underlines the project's commitment to providing practical features that cater to every aspect of the ebook experience. To download Caliber 7.x, head to the Caliber's website down page, and there's a link to that in the show notes, where you'll find a command to download Caliber for Linux as a binary build. The developers advise using this over distributed provided Caliber package, distribution provided package, as those often are buggy and outdated. You can also install Caliber from Flathub if you want a less obtuse way of getting it. Though, as far as I can tell, that package is not official, so keep in mind if you're likely to be filling out bug reports from using it. And, yeah. Well, okay, so I was hoping for a bit more when it came to the audio portion there. Um, But uh, that's still interesting. I was hoping that either it would also, you know, um, collate, and act as a library for audiobooks as well as ebooks, or that it would uh, incorporate a reader, like one of the, the just actually you know the voice aloud things, text to text to speech. But um, it doesn't look like that's the case. But um, still, interesting. Now I have found some good like audio readers, and I'd love to see them incorporated with uh, Caliber. All right. Go ahead. You had something to say? Oh, I was just going to say, it. Does, it it's not real clear here whether those features are going to be kind of added, but I think, I think you've got the groundwork for all that now, and as time goes on, if it's not a part of it, you know, it'll probably get added to it because it's... Yeah, it, it seems like what you can do is attach an audio file to the ebook and then the other things that it was talking about there with adding like uh pdfs and things like that sounds more like you know creating a cliff notes type of thing and adding things to it which is what we were talking about at first or almost like the way wikipedia works where you've got in some articles you've got audio files attached to it that just kind of it's just kind of a link to something playing somewhere and then the the images and things um but yeah, I'm I'm kind of interested, and in I've been thinking about setting up a, a uh, Caliber server, and uh, that way I can use Caliber or something 
equivalent to it on the Android side when I'm on the road and that. Because there is... Well, I have found Caliber to be useful, uh, especially when it comes to, like, bulk um, moving, like, file types. Like, actually making it an EPUB or... Because I I hate trying to do PDFs usually unless I'm I'm doing a comic, and even then CBR is a little bit better, even though it's just, like, glorified PDF. But, yeah, it's... It's good for... I mean, it's just another good way to uh, keep your... If you do have a lot of PDFs for, like, technical writing and things like that, it's a good way to keep those organized. Well, I use Caliber in conjunction with uh, Audio Bookshelf, which does have the ability to also do um, eBooks, which is how I get them to my phone. So you might try an Audio Bookshelf instance... Yeah, I've got a server. I've got an audio bookshelf server running, and then I've got, of course, I've I've used yours too. Right. Well, if you've used mine, if you all my eBooks are are on there as well. You just have to switch from the books section to the the eBook section. Oh, right. Heck, my podcasts are on there too. They should still be automatically downloading. We'll have to verify. Now I knew that I knew it did podcasts. I wasn't I wasn't aware that it did eBooks, but. That yep. would be a good solution. Well, audio bookshelf can be rather interesting when it comes to like organizing things. Like if your stuff's not named correctly, then it won't come up correct. And Caliber is great for doing that automatically. The setting up the file structure and the folder structure and everything like that. And audio bookshelf just handles it, handles the distribution to me since I'm already doing it for audio anyway. But we should like move on probably. Right on. KDE developers continue on bug fixing spree ahead of Plasma 6.0. It's a Christmas season of bug fixing in the KDE world, as following the late November Plasma 6.0 Beta 1, they've shifted from feature work to fixes, and with the new test release has received an influx of bug reports. KDE developer Nate Graham is out with his weekly development summary, which for this week mostly amounts to a lot of bug fixing and then just a couple of new features were squeezed in. First up, when using KDE automatic bug reporting, the system notification telling you about the crash can now allow the user to optionally provide a message for developers to help better explain the crash. I see that as a bad idea. Secondly, and as already covered in Pharonix, there is now... KWIN DMA Fence Deadline Support for helping improve the performance and responsiveness on systems when using integrated graphics with the Plasma Wayland session. The rest of the KDE development work this week was focused on fixing mass amounts of bugs. More details on these Plasma 6.0 bug fixes for the week can be found via Nate's blog, link in the show notes. Plasma 6.0 remains on track for releasing at the end of February. Plasma continues to be one of the most aggressively developed pieces of software or suites of software that's out there because I, I update my laptop once a week and uh, every single time it's it's got to be at least 100 KDE things or plasma things, you know. Especially if you, if you do the whole... If you install everything that comes by default with the uh, KDE apps meta package, it's an awful lot. And I tell you what, they 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 when there's a bug, they get on it. So it's 
it's good to see these things. And I'm looking forward to Plasma 6. Anyway. Yeah. Oh, good. Uh, we're ready to move on. Yep. Intel striving to overhaul their multiple Ethernet Linux drivers. They're dubbing it the Great Code Dedupe. And this is Pharonix.com. Intel engineers maintain multiple Ethernet drivers in the Linux kernel for their wide range of networking hardware from consumer to high-end data center wares. There's been an ongoing effort to overhaul their Ethernet driver management to reduce code duplication between the different drivers for, for better code sharing and with an end goal of more unification. Sent out on Thursday was the sixth iteration of this ongoing work that is dubbed the Great Code Dedupe for deduplicating for anybody that didn't pick up on that. Uh, all of the redundant code between Intel's several Ethernet Linux drivers. Intel networking driver engineer Alexander Lubakin, I apologize, explained in that latest patch series, and I quote, not a secret, there's a ton of code duplication between two or more Intel Ethernet modules. Before introducing new changes, which would need to be copied over again, start decoupling the already existing duplicate functionality into a new module, which will be shared between several Intel Ethernet drivers. The first name that came to my mind was Libby Intel Ethernet Common Library. Okay. Also, this sounds like lovely, one word, no L-I-B-I-E-P-L-S. Okay. And can be expanded as Lib Internet Explorer. Oh. The series is only the beginning. From now on, adding every new feature or doing any good driver restoring will remove much more lines than add for quite some time. There's a basic roadmap with some deduplications planned already, not speaking of that, touching every line now asks, can I share this? The final destination is very ambitious. Have only one unified driver for at least I80E, ICE, IAVF, and IDPF with a struct ops for each generation. That's never going to happen, right? But you can still at least try. PP conversation for IAVF lands within the same series as those two are tied closely. Uh, LIBIE will support page pool model only so that a driver can't use much of the LIB until it's converted. IAVF is only the example. The rest will eventually be converted soon on a peer driver basis. That is when it gets really interesting. Stay tech, unquote. At the moment, these patches lead to over 2,000 lines of code being dropped while adding just 1K or 1,000 lines of new code for the proposed LIBIE commonized code. In the end, this should lead to better drive maintenance and code sharing for the Intel Ethernet drivers. It will be interesting to see what next features they have in mind for their Ethernet drivers once this great code dedupe is complete. And the only thing I'm taking from this is that it's cleaning up, it's simplifying, and that's got to be a good thing. It's deduplicating. It's deduplicating. I've heard that word when talking about ButterFS and uh, ZFS. Well, yeah, but 
th- those are functions of um, your um, well drive system, your file system to deduplicate your own files. This is deduplicating, you know, drivers. Which, if anybody ever takes one of those stat tools and looks at their root directory, like the biggest thing, if you're on a Debian or Ubuntu-based distribution, about the biggest thing on there is the Linux uh, firmware package. And anything you can do to clean up some of that, you know, because as time goes on, I'm not a developer, but I can only imagine that as time goes on, corrupt just builds up especially with software that's got multiple tens of thousands or even millions of lines of code. Yep. <clears throat> but moving on, Canonical releases Multipass 1.13 RC with snapshot support migrated to QT6. This is from Veronix. Canonical's Multipass software that is advertised as cloud-style VMs at your fingertips and making it easy to spin up Ubuntu VMs on demand for any workstation is out with a new test release adding snapshot support and other new features. Thursday's release of Multipass 1.13 RC is significant in that it finally adds supports for snapshots. Similar to VM snapshots, Multipass snapshots allow taking a snapshot of an instance that can be easily restored at a later date. So should you mess up an instance, you can easily roll back if a snapshot was made previously. Multipass 1.13 also migrates from QT5 to QT6, which in turn fixes a number of bugs in the process. Multipass 1.3 has also seen some parts of its cross-platform SFTP server rewritten. Fetching of remote image information is now faster and various other updates. Multipass 1.13 RC can be easily fetched via beta updates on Snap or the source fetched from GitHub. Those unfamiliar with this canonical open source software project geared for Ubuntu Linux can learn more about the project at multipass.run. Link in the show notes. Well, it's always good to have other backup options. Yep, because if it ain't backed up, you don't own it. (laughs) All right, Linux 6.8 dropping support for very old graphics drivers. This is from Pharonix.com. A new DRM-MISC-NEXT pull request was sent today to DRM-NEXT, bringing a few... Notable changes for the upcoming Linux 6.8 merge window. First up, today's pull removes the user space mode switching IOCTLS from the kernel kernel mode setting that has been preferred for many years now by the Linux desktop while the user space mode setting interfaces have remained. Earlier this year in Linux 6.3, a number of old and unmaintained drivers were removed for obsolete graphics hardware. For Linux 6.8, the old UMS infrastructure is being removed to finally say goodbye to the old UMS world. When it comes to new code in this week's DRM MSC Next pull, the V3D driver adds support for CPU jobs. This Broadcom V3D driver will focus uh, it, work is focused on the Raspberry Pi single board computers to better handle Vulkan and being able to handle more work on the CPU side for where the Broadcom video core graphics hardware isn't accommodating enough for Vulkan API needs. New to Linux 6.8 in the DRM world is the Imagination Power VR DRM driver. 
This week's pull has added a number of fixes on this newly queued driver code. More detail on the other DRM MSC NEXT feature changes for the week can be found via uh, this pull request, which is linked in the show docs here. I can always tell when an article is meant to be read silently <laughs> because because of the way things are kind of spelled out that way, you know. But that's uh, I yeah, that was an interesting one to read. <laughs> I'm sure I I'm sure some people probably handle it better than I do. I just uh, I'm also not sure what I'm looking at either. I I, I understand that. It becomes necessary as time goes on. I was just thinking, though, for people that still have this hardware, what what uh, options do they have if they really need to keep this thing working? Are they just stuck on an older kernel? or? Well, you can find the modules from the older kernel and then force load them onto the new one, which is probably what most of them end up having to do. But, you know, it's fewer and fewer people over time. So Right. But, again... Cleanup is good. Make room for more crusty code. Anyway, that's it for the news. Moving on to security and privacy. Joe? Okay, first up in uh, security and privacy, stealthy Linux rootkit found in the wild after going undetected for two years. This is from Ars Technica. Krasu infects telecom firms in Thailand using techniques for staying under the radar. Stealthy and multifunctional Linux malware that has been infecting telecommunications companies went largely unnoticed for two years until being documented for the first time by researchers on Thursday. Researchers from... Security firm Group IB have named the remote access Trojan Krasu after a nocturnal spirit depicted in Southeast Asian folklore, floating in midair with no torso, just her intestines hanging from below her chin. That's not graphic at all. The researchers chose the name because evidence to date shows it almost exclusively targets victims in Thailand and poses a severe risk to critical systems and sensitive data given that it is able to grant attackers remote access to the targeted network. According to the researchers, Krasu is a Linux remote access Trojan that has been active since 2020 and predominantly targets organizations in Thailand. Group IB can confirm that the telecommunications companies were targeted by Krasu. The malware contains several embedded rootkits to support different Linux kernel versions. And I'm sure I'm, I'm, I'm torturing that name. Krasu's rootkit is drawn from public sources, three open source Linux kernel module rootkits, as is the case with many Linux rootkits. The rootkit can hook the kill syscall, network-related functions, and file listing operations in order to hide its activities and evade detection. Notably, Krasu uses RTSP, real-time streaming protocol messages, to serve as a disguised alive ping, a tactic rarely seen in the wild. The Linux malware group IB researchers presume is deployed during the later stages of an attack chain in order to maintain access to a victim host. Krasu is likely to either be deployed as part of a botnet or sold by initial access brokers to other cyber criminals. Group IB researchers believe that Krasu was created by the same author 
as the Zord DDoS Linux Trojan documented by Microsoft in March 2022 blog post, link in the show notes, or someone who had access to the latter source code. During the initialization phase, the rootkit conceals its own presence. It then proceeds to hook the kill syscall network-related functions and file listing operations, thereby obscuring its activities and evading detection. The researchers have so far been able to determine precisely... Excuse me, let me reread reread that. (coughs) The researchers have so far been unable to determine precisely how Crassu gets installed. Possible infection vectors include through vulnerability exploitation, credential stealing, or guessing attacks, or by unwittingly being installed as Trojan, stash in an installation file or update masquerading as legitimate software. The three open source rootkit packages incorporated in, into Crossu are Diamorphine, Suturuso, and Rudy. Rootkits are a type of malware that hides directories, files, processes, and other evidence of its presence to the operating system it's installed on. By hooking legitimate Linux processes, the malware is able to suspend them at select points and interject functions that conceal its presence. Specifically, it hides files and directories beginning with the names odd and VMware helper from directory listings and hides port 52695 and 52699, where communications to attacker-controlled servers occur. Intercepting the kill syscall also allows the Trojan to survive Linux commands attempting to abort the program and shut it down. Whew. Yeah, that's a complicated one, as Ars Technica articles tend to be. Um, I've been curious about rootkits for some time. I've never actually seen it uh, explained that way. I'm not sure so, how... I'd have to do some research. I've never actually researched a rootkit to see what it is or how it works. Yeah, I always assumed it was just some process by which to fool the system into believing an application or a uh, a function or an execution has root privileges. A series of root-level tools Yeah. for access and control. Interesting. Moving on, feds warn health sector to watch for open source threats. Now, I had a reason for uh, putting this in. This is from LinuxSecurity.com. The government's warning to the health sector to watch for open source threats has long been on the radar of the IT industry. Open source software, which is free to use, can be a great tool for organizations that need to scale quickly or don't have the budget for proprietary software. However, Using it has inherent risks, and no one knows that better than the government. The government says that open-source security vulnerabilities can allow hackers access to systems and networks and cause damage that could cost millions of dollars in damages in low data or productivity. They also say that hackers could use these vulnerabilities as entry points into other parts of an organization's network or infrastructure. The government is trying to help by offering guidance on how to migrate these risks or mitigate these risks and what steps should be taken if you suspect an open source vulnerability may have compromised your system. Healthcare organizations should be aware of these issues when choosing software solutions and ensure they have proper security measures before implementing them into their systems. 
If this advice is followed, choosing open source software solutions over proprietary alternatives can have significant security benefits. Check out the article linked below for more details on the government's warning and advice for mitigating risk. And the link is below that particular paragraph in the article. Okay, so now I... When I first read this, I was a little bit triggered because it because it's the same old thing that uh, proprietary software advocates try to shove down everybody's throats that if it's open source, how on earth can it be secure? Because anybody has access to the source code, right? And yeah, but also everybody has access to audit the source yeah. code. <laughs> it's kind of hard to hide something in open source software if people are making it their life's mission and they do to try to find these, you know, little zero days. And, 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 oh, by the way, there's fundamentally no difference between software that is written and, uh, collaborated on. There is, there is, there is, um, there is a difference between open source and closed source. I mean, closed source has security through obscurity. And, obscurity you know, meaning that open, you don't know your your security has been compromised because right. you can't and see the code. Open source has security through all eyes on it to see where you're messing up so that it can be fixed. But that's just our opinion. I think the I think the argument here, if I was to give them any latitude whatsoever, the argument here is that you have a higher uh, probability of effective. Um, threats simply because an attacker has access to the source code so they can they can audit this code and find where possible vulnerabilities might be and i can accept that argument to a degree but again you know with with all software there's there's best practices there's ways of of uh, using it correctly make sure you keep it up to date you know things like that um there's a risk with open source there was that two-year-old vulnerability that we just read about a second ago. There, there's a risk with closed source. We've all read about all the different things that has happened with, like, Windows and things like that. But the back end of nearly everything runs on open source. So yeah, Absolutely. I mean, you, it, you would be shocked to learn how, men, how much of this world's I telecommunication wouldn't. and medical and... Banking, banking, shopping, all this stuff is ran by these little open source projects that are all just Lego blocks in the whole in the whole building process. You know, Linux runs the world. It does. It absolutely does. The back end, not the front end, but the back end. Which is not so glorious, but you know, when it stops working, then everybody wants to know why, and and so there you go. So that was the reason why I thought it'd be interesting to include this article. I mean, it's possible that the the author did not want to did not want to put the message out there that open source software is vulnerable just because it's open source. Um I think it, they could have done a little bit better job in well describing now, open source software you could consider it to be vulnerable because it is open source. It's just closed source is equally as vulnerable just for different reasons. Yeah, and the the one the the glaring difference is that if it's if you've got a vulnerability in closed source software, you're not going to know it unless someone else finds it and puts it out there for you. Because you know Windows isn't going to tell you that they're vulnerable. 
Microsoft isn't going to tell you that there's a vulnerability in Windows. Let me rephrase that. chance. So, if nothing else, that's it for security and privacy. Moving on to the bi-weekly wanderings. And I'll go first. So this week I decided to focus on two things. Uh, setting up a Mumble server for Mintcast and getting better at LibreOffice Writer. The second of those things is important to me because, as many would be aware, about a year or so ago we moved our cloud stuff to NextCloud, effectively ending our dependence on Google Drive and Docs. While everyone has been resolved to this decision, it has not been the easiest of rides. NextCloud has a couple of options for document creation and management with one of which being the best uh, supported. An open source group called Collabora in partnership with the Document Foundation offer a solution called NextCloud Office. This solution involves both the NextCloud client plugin, which is basically a web version of LibreOffice, and the server component, which is called Collabora, which has to be installed separately from the NextCloud installation. Uh, it's essentially a document management server. It doesn't do any actual storage of the individual documents. Rather, it is simply the engine of the document management solution that we use. Uh, while LibreOffice is one of those darling open source software projects that we are lucky exists, its functionality is somewhat different from Microsoft Office and bears even less resemblance to Google Docs. Anyone expecting it to behave like either of those projects is in for a bit of a bumpy ride. The biggest challenge was learning how to properly manage the way LibreOffice uh, handles paragraph styles. This feature is actually powerful because it allows you to create profiles which control everything from the font style and color to paragraph indentation and bullet style. Uh, our show notes doc utilizes a lot of indention and bulleting and the way it's handled on LibreOffice has turned out to be a bit of a maddening process for some people not used to the way it's done. I set out through several tutorials and videos to learn how to do it correctly so that I'm not railroaded by the nuances of the software and I'm glad I did because there's a lot of differences out there or there's a lot of differences between the software now I had to take when I was in college I took a course on Microsoft Office it was it was required for pretty much every degree they called the class introduction to microcomputers I'm not sure what what that's all about but it was it was absolutely a course on uh, Microsoft Office and so you get broken by learning how to use that and then you try to go to something that is uh, equally is massive in terms of its uh, functionality and it doesn't behave the same way it looks the same way in a lot of in a lot of places but it doesn't necessarily behave the same way so it's like learning how to do it all over again and it's a bit painful um, so anyway I, I was able to find some stuff on that and I'm still kind of honing out some stuff but I'm learning a lot the other challenge I took on was to is learn how to set up and manage a Mumble server as a possible solution to the ongoing problems we have with video streaming on on or to YouTube. 
for over a year now, we've been using a solution called DDO Ninja, which is a project I love dearly. Uh, my other two shows get on with the software flawlessly. But the whole thing has has been slightly less successful for the Mintcast crew. So I took it upon myself to find another solution. Now, I thought my thought was that if video is the bottleneck, then perhaps we should just drop video altogether and simply focus on the audio version of the show. Um, mumble would mean bandwidth would mean bandwidth uh, necessary for the host to stream would be a lot less, and software resources would be uh, lowered as well. So I got the server up and running, and it's currently public-facing for testing purposes. It seems to work well. Now, yesterday, during our meeting, it was decided that video was, well, you know, it's a little more valuable. Uh, it's a bit more of a valuable tool for interfacing with each other. So another solution was needed. This was when Jitsi Meet was suggested. I think it was by Eric, actually. I was aware of the software, and I, think, I, I, I liked the service. When I first started Three Fat Truckers, it was the solution we went with. In time, I moved away from it in favor of Video Ninja, which is a project made for made more for content creation and ties in neatly with OBS Studio. It actually streams directly to OBS Studio. That's what we're using right now. Um, that was because at the time I could have sworn there was a time limit on their server, which would be a non-starter for Mintcast because we tend to go on for three hours or better at times. Whether that was true or not at the time, there's absolutely no indication that that's, that limitation exists now. Uh, the software seems solid and a great possible solution for the show. We will do some testing of these solutions, but before we decide to make any real changes, for now we'll muddle on with Video Ninja. Um, right now, I want to say uh, Roundtable should probably always be done with Discord to allow uh, community, community members to particip participate in the conversation. Um, and let me take this opportunity to say, when it comes to Roundtable, we encourage all of our listeners to jump on our Discord channel and join us for Roundtable uh, every Saturday opposite of the Mintcast live stream at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. Now, what that means is it wouldn't have been yesterday. It, it'll be this next coming Saturday at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern. So the, the weekend's opposite of the actual show, or opposite of the weeks where it shows up on YouTube, I should say. Um, so anybody, and I mean anybody and everybody, that is welcome, more than welcome. We're excited to get new people to come on and uh, talk with us about just anything that comes up. So yeah, go if you haven't if you haven't uh, got Discord set up or installed, it might be a good time to give that a try. It's actually it's proprietary, but it's it's actually a pretty amazing piece of software and it's free and it's and it works really well and there's uh there's a version for every platform out there. So get it get uh uh, add the uh, Mintcast uh, channel, and uh, you'll be off to the races. Anyway, that's all I got. What about you, Joe? I, I would like to say that I've done a lot, but I, I took some some relaxing time. But I did do some. Um, I found a parent mini drone at the Goodwill for $8. Um, it's not a great drone to be, 
begin with, but for the price, you know, you can't really complain. In the end, it's going to be my sons to play with, but for now, I, I'm messing about with it. Um, there were some issues with it staying connected to Bluetooth, but that seems to be a common problem with this particular model of drone. Um, it's the, what is it, the Parrot Mini Mars? Um, this disconnect caused the drone to fly up and hit my ceiling in the garage, which caused one of the propellers to fly off into the ninth dimension. I have not been able to find it yet. This led me to try to 3D print another one to try out. Um, I actually printed a couple of different ones, uh, but I did not find one that worked very well, so I'll probably just end up purchasing some more soon. Plus, I'm thinking that um, I'll, some extra batteries might be helpful because it takes a little while to charge, and then the batteries may be 15 to 20 minutes of running. Very small batteries, though, so I'm not surprised. The controls for the drone are actually pretty good when the thing is working, um, as it should, but it hovers very well and moves around pretty good, but will always be limited by how far you can control it using Bluetooth. And I have read a lot of um, people reviews talking about how they were playing with it in their backyard and Bluetooth would disconnect and the thing would fly straight up, which seems to be a pretty major problem that they didn't, you know, set it up in software that if Bluetooth disconnected that it lands instead of, you know, flying away, never to be seen again. So for now, I will probably stick to me and my son flying it around my garage so it doesn't end up on the moon. Now, I also 3D printed some cat ears for my children's headphones. During this process, I found out that my bed on my 3D printer had a lot of wobble. It was actually a pretty easy fix once I watched the YouTube videos that showed me how to fix it. My kids liked the cat ears. I did have to print a couple of different iterations of the ears to get a proper fit on their headphones, and I did have to redesign the mounting portion. I may still get some issues with durability, as like my son already broke his first set, but that might be caused by some other problems, and I may have to add some material in strategic locations to get them to hold together better, but only time will tell. Um... I was also trying to use up some of my older rolls of PLA to get rid of them after running them through my filament dryer, but I guess I used too high of a setting on my dryer because um, a couple of rolls got closer to the center, the filament started kind of sticking together. This caused it not to stay on the spool roller that I have for it. Mostly the prints came out okay, but the roll would just like be all over the place and fly towards the, um, the not the extruder, but the, well, yeah, I guess that it's still part of the extruder. But um, I'm hoping that the Titan bed will mean that I don't have to level the bed as often. Um, although I am getting a bit of level shift, it's not really that bad. I'm looking into what could be causing it. But it might be that the filament roll was pulling against the uh, extruder. So we'll see after I get a new roll. Um, now, I'm also pretty far along in the process of designing and printing my own headband for headphones. Still some bugs for me to work out on the length and how I want it to fold and whether or not I want the length to be adjustable as I'm going to be the only one wearing the ones that I make. Now, this will allow me to extend the life of over-the-ear headphones when the bands break by simply redesigning the forks that hold them into position. Right now, I am designing around the Hesh 3 as I have quite a few of, of them with broken bands floating around. Um, and I also have the STLs that I previously made 
for the, the forks. So um, that's a little bit more design that I don't have to do right now. Um, I also have some ideas that'll make the printing process easier as right now there is a lot of support material that has to be removed and the end product isn't as smooth as I would like it to be. Um, also, I'm thinking about changing the design a little bit and adding some JST connectors uh, which would make the device much more modular so that I only have to remove the, the forks and replace it with other ones as needed, depending on the headphones that I want to use. Um, this will mean that I don't have to print as many bands, and I can do a lot more testing, and each iteration of forks pop on, pop off, without having to do a whole bunch of soldering. Um, I've also started the process of backing up my home drive on my server slash garage computer, in order to do the migration to an M.2 SSD from my 2.5 SSD. I know I could do a DD and then do an expansion on the file system, but um, <clears throat> the issue with that is that there's a lot of cruft that has built up over the years. <clears throat> so I am testing out different ways of backing up as well. Um, but I'll still be able to switch back to the old drive at, if I need to, so, you know, ultimate backup there. Um, I have a lot of years in getting this OS set up the way that I want, so I'm a little reluctant to pull that final trigger on a nuke and pave, but it probably needs to be done just to clear that cruft up uh, from testing various applications and various settings. Uh, plus, the added space could be useful. I'd be going from a 500 gig to a, a 1 terabyte. Um, I tend to try and not put personal files on the main disk uh, of any system that I use, but it tends to happen anyway as time goes on. Uh, I'll let you know how the process goes. Um, I am testing out the built-in backup functions from Mint. Um, so it's it, I think it just does a straight copy of the uh, slash home, which I also did manually. And then also with um, Mint comes the ability to create a list of all the repos that you're using along with all the applications that you have installed. I'm testing that out as well, but for some reason it only gives you the option to store that in the home directory. So I'm going to make sure that I have a separate copy of the file that it creates in another location that I can then import after I install uh, the new version of Mint. And, yeah. Moving on to housekeeping and announcements. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mintcast. If you see something you'd like to hear about, tell us. Send us an email at mintcast at mintcast.org. Join us live on YouTube. Post at the Mintcast subreddit. Chat with us on Telegram and Discord or post directly on HTTPS mintcast.org. And I, I actually announced today's show on reddit today so i'm quite proud of myself uh next episode will be 2 p.m u.s central time on sunday december 24th 2023 and there's a link in the show notes to get that converted to your time zone next roundtable live stream will be 2 p.m u.s central time on saturday december 16th 2023 and there's a link to get that converted to your time zone in the show notes Livestream information is at mintcast.org slash livestream. Wrapping up, Joe, where can we get more of you? 
Well, we do have one more announcement. I know that we're also going to be putting the spot into the um, overall mix of the audio. But HPR is having their New Year's show on um, the 31st into the 1st. So that's like 27 hours straight where you could potentially talk to all your favorite podcasters if you're in into Linux podcasting. I know Joe Resington jumps on there. Um, sometimes I think the Jupiter Broadcasting guys might get on there, but I don't remember specifically. But a lot of the, the different people in the podcasting community will be on there. Plus, people just from all over the world getting on and talking about Linux, talking about whatever makes them happy, and, and talking about the new year. So, yeah. Definitely jump on there, hpr.org, I think it is, or something like that. But Or just do a search for HPR New Year's Show, and all the information will be there. It's on Mumble. It's really easy to access. But okay. if you would have been listening, if you're listening to the audio-only version, you would have heard the uh, announcement at the beginning of the show, talking the official announcement, uh, talking about the... HPR, Hacker Public Radio, uh, New Year's Eve show. There's going to be a stream, too. Uh, the guy explained all that. So if you didn't catch it, just scroll back to the beginning and and play it again. He pretty much outlines it. Yeah. Um, if you like the sound of my voice, uh, you can catch me on a couple of my other podcasts. I am on the Linux Link Tech Show, tllts.org. I'm on uh, Linux Lugcast, which is linuxlugcast.com. You can send me an email, jb at mintcast.org, or buy me a coffee with Kofi. Bill? Well, first off, Moss couldn't be here with us today, but you can uh, uh, find him on his show, Full Circle Weekly News. Fantastic Linux news podcast, by the way. Uh, Distro Hoppers Digest. Uh, you can email him, bardmoss at pm.me. His mastodon is at zyvla at hosttux.social. And all of his other content information can be found at itsmoss.com. Somebody literally wrote out itsmoss.com. As far as I'm concerned, you can get a hold of me at uh, bill at mintcast.org. I'm bill underscore h on Discord. My mastodon is at wchauser3 at fostodon.org. Also, check out my two other podcasts, Linux OTC and 3Fat Truckers. Majid couldn't be here with us today. You can email him at drmajid at mintcast.org. He's at atypicaldoctor on Twitter, or whatever they call it this week. Uh, he's atypical anesthetist on Instagram, and the he has a uh, another show on Spotify called the Atypical Anesthetist Podcast. Eric also couldn't be with us today. You can hear and see him on this and the Linux OTC podcast, as well as the Linux Saloon and Linux Lugcast streams. If you'd like to get in touch with him, he can be reached by email at eric at mintcast.org. He's at eric underscore Adams on Discord. Uh, There's a link in the show notes to his Telegram, his Matrix, and his uh, Mastodon is at ericadams at fostodon.org. Links to all those in the show notes. Before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make Mintcast possible. Uh, Someone for the audio editing, God knows. Uh, Archive.org for hosting our audio files. 
Hobstar for our logo, Annette RD for the animated Discord logo, Londoner for our time sinks and various other contributions, uh, someone for, <laughs> by someone me, for hosting the server which runs our website, website maintenance, and the Nextcloud server on which we host our show notes and raw audio. i got to figure out a way to read that correctly when, it, when I'm talking about myself. Um, and last but not least, the Linux Mint development team for the fine distro we love to talk about. Thanks, Clem. Thanks, Clem. And Co. This has been another episode of the Mintcast podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. Join us in our Discord channel and our Telegram group. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. Thanks to Interfection for our theme music, and thanks for listening to this episode of Mintcast. Mintcast.